and welcome to episode 31 of the VSuit Podcast, the audio-only virtualization podcast that 9 out of 10 cats approve. Christian, Ed and I wanted to do a show with a bit of a networking edge, and our guest couldn't be a better fit if he had a protocol named after him. Host of the Packet Pushers Podcast and blogger extraordinaire, it's Greg Farrow. Hi Greg, welcome to the show. <laughs> a protocol named after him, right? <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> you do me far too good as far as complimentary, you really are. <laughs> There are loads of bad protocols out there, though. No, that's true. <laughs> well, that's right. I mean, the, uh, one of the criticisms that uh, server grunts like to level at networking people is that there's 6,000 different protocols. How come we need so many? <laughs> Just to have the one that works, I guess. Uh, <laughs> there is a lot of them. I mean, you know, there are 6,000 draft RFCs in the IETF, and they're all fantastic, by the way. <laughs> Thanks, Chris, for that uh, amazing intro. I am Greg Farrow. You can sometimes find me on my podcast, which is at the packetpushers.net website. We, uh, we came up with a really good name. It's called Packet Pushers Podcast, which is really great for these microphones. It makes them pop. Uh, I'm also a network engineer. Currently, I am the uh, chief network officer for Canopy Cloud, who is the cloud division of Atos. And I also am a writer at my own blog on ethereumind.com, and I also do a fair bit of writing for other sites, such as Network World and things like that. Oh, that's right. I, I, I didn't realize that uh, you were part of the, uh, the Canopy crew, and they've uh, been, been snapping up some quite, uh, quite well-known names and, and faces. Uh, yeah, well, I get the uh, singularly good luck of working with Hugo Fan, who is... <laughs> yeah. yeah, if you... Does. That's a really good guy. He knows an awful lot about vClouds, let me assure you. <laughs> so. uh, and and my, my former colleague from Veeam, uh, Mr. Mr. Alcacen, uh, Ricky, the, uh, yes. the quietest person in, in virtualization, uh, as you'll no doubt be aware. I only just discovered that he works for us the other day, so I am going to be scheduling meetings to catch up with him shortly. Okay. The, the canopy works very fast. We're changing very rapidly, like any good cloud company, and we're hiring more people that, conceptually than I can keep up with at any given point in time. Cool. Um, so, yeah, sort of really starting off, um, this, this grew out of a, a conversation from uh, the, the last episode where we started talking about you know, VMware is now pushing the whole software-defined data center, and at the core of that is software-defined networking. Um, and it, it got me thinking a little bit about... Um, at my early days in virtualization, when I had to try to explain to our network admin that we had a virtual switch and that, um, what we were doing with it, and he looked at me with a mixture of derision and pity, um, sort of much like I would review my sort of toddler's uh, artwork from, from nursery, and that it's great that they're trying, but they're not really actually producing anything useful. Um, so, you know, our, VMware, obviously, they're trying to get really serious about the networking side of things, but mm -hmm. is it... In the grand scheme of things, is it really that serious, or is it still, um, you know, primary school kind of stuff? I guess it's a it's a complicated thing, right? Because the people who want networking to change actually isn't networking. You could probably level a criticism at the networking industry that they haven't done a great job of stepping up to the plate to make the network more dynamic. What they've actually done is sort of held back. But I guess. I would like to point out that this is the fourth generation of virtualization in networking today. It's not exactly obvious how these things have gotten to where they are, but virtualization in networking, we're kind of tired and a little bit bored of implementing it, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> so it's worth pointing out that things like virtual LANs 
hint, yep. T's in the name. <laughs> uh, then we started, impl- you know, that was in the late 90s, that was in the mid to late 90s. Then in the uh, mid late 90s, early to mid 2000s, we were implementing MPLS. Uh, MPLS has one key feature in it, it's called virtual router forwarding, key's in the name again, where we actually virtualized all of the paths across service provider backbone. So we created the hugest scale. You're talking about carrier-grade networks being virtualized. And I mean not just devices, but paths, redundant paths, resilient paths, paths that fail over within 50 milliseconds because we build them that way, right? So networking kind of knows virtualization from that point of view. And then if you figure somewhere in just after 2005, say around about the time that VMware started to get traction with server people after trying for five years, we also were virtualizing network appliances. So for example, in 2006, 2007, I was installing virtualized firewalls which was we had one physical appliance and I could turn it into 50 logical firewall instances in the physical appliance. So when the when VMware comes along and goes, wow, let's do virtual networking, everybody sort of goes, really? Again? <laughs> well, you've done it. Yeah. Again? Yeah, got the T-shirt, went on the gearing holder. Yeah, that's right. It's like, oh, okay, righto, let's go around it again. And it's a little bit like, well, now, what did we learn from last time? Answer? Nothing. Oh, sorry, uh, lots of things. Uh <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Do you think are there just a you know a set of set of similar mistakes of, of history repeating itself? You know, just this vision of um, the physical network being reduced to just big layer two pipes and everything else being done in software. Is is that a, a viable reality, or is it something that should be kept on the powerpoints and nowhere else? Well, the challenge, of course, for well. It's, it needs to be off the PowerPoint. We need to do something, right? Because what happens is that in the, you know, for the past 15 years, we've always assumed that servers and workstations, and let's talk about workstations, right? Because it can be a desktop as well, has always just plugged into a socket on the wall. And so the security industry and the networking industry have gotten together and said, well, that's the known ingress point to the network. Okay. And then when people came along and said, well, you know what? We're going to give everybody a tablet and they're going to move around all the time on wireless. Or... We're going to take those servers and we're going to put a hypervisor layer and then we're going to move the servers around between the different points, you know, anywhere in the data center. In fact, between data centers. In fact, anywhere in the whole wide world. They could be anywhere. And networking kind of went, ooh, all of our standards and all of our processes have sort of been dug into this is the Ethernet socket, this is where it is. And when Wi-Fi came along, we sort of said, well, it's still coming in on an Ethernet socket because the Wi-Fi kind of comes back to a central controller so we know where everybody is. And that... Uh, kept us going for for a fair while, but really that hasn't sort of held us in good stead. At the end of the day, we now need to find a way to do something um, a bit more. You know, we need to step up to the plate to meet these technologies in terms of networking and be able to address it. So ultimately, the uh, IEEE, who are the people who own Ethernet, and you know, Ethernet is fundamentally the local access or the edge protocol. They uh, scratch their scratch their heads, and then they scratch their stomach, and then they scratch their nuts, and they invented somebody that nobody cared about. In the end, we went around, you know, the original idea was that we would invent some extensions to Ethernet that would allow you to uh, come out of the server, send it into the switch, the switch would then either switch it or root it and send it back up to the virtual hypervisor, and that would then lead to a piece of silicon that would be on the NIC, and you know, you might, if you're into Cisco UCS, you might know this, it's called FEX where the packet goes up, gets switched, switch and comes back into the server and everybody's happy, you know, local switching and all those kinds of good things. Um, the, uh, I, you know, that, that failed 
uh, has a lot to do with the fact that the IEEE couldn't organise a drink in a brewery. They, uh, you know, take years to argue over the colour of Ethernet frames and they want to, you know, the titles of it. Anyway, IEEE seems to be a dysfunctional standards organisation. They own Ethernet. We can't exactly take it away from them, so let's live with it. So then we've come up with different ways, and that's where the idea of software-defined networking came from. In the end, we had to turn around and say, what else can we do that allows us to build networks that are dynamic and movable without actually changing the physical nature of the network? Because who, you know, there's still nobody today wants to, well, nobody wants to change the network. You know, we all, nobody wants to throw out their networking equipment um, at this point in time. Yep. So in the end... You know, everybody looked around, and then there was this guy who was doing some research over in Stanford University, and he had a bit of traction, and his professor was a, a well-known professor with a good name, uh, who everybody, you know, heavily involved, built lots of good stuff. And he said, this looks like a good solution, and everybody around in Sam Silicon Valley ran around to each other and went, this looks like a good solution, and then everybody went, looks good enough, let's go with it. And that fundamentally is the start of SDN. Right. So, you know, it's kind of... Complex. I guess the fundamental part of SDN is that up until now we've always talked about networks routing packets, right? So yep. the first thing to understand is that we take a packet. You eject a little, you know, you take a little section of data, you wrap it in an envelope and you send it across the network and the guy at the other end undoes it and then sends a message back and says, I got that, and so you send the next piece. But the network doesn't actually, the applications, your TCP session between servers is actually a flow. It actually transmits packets backwards and forwards. So we need to address flows. It's not packets that the network needs to handle, it's flows. So what uh, Martin Casado, who now works for VMware via the Nasiri acquisition, he said, well, why don't we design a methodology based around loading flow data into a forwarding engine, and then I could actually define all the data that needs to go. And that's fundamentally SDN. SDN is all about... Uh, so VMware NSX, and I'll talk about competitive products to NSX in a minute because VMware hasn't got this industry to itself, although it might like to think so, and it's highly unlikely to be successful in its own right unless it does something smart at this point in time. So let me just say that, that VMware is not, VMware NSX is not by any stretch of the imagination a leading implementation of SDN. It's kind of like just another one at this point in time. Okay. Albeit, albeit in the biggest pond. <laughs> You know what I mean? Technically, yep. it's way behind, but it's still on the biggest platform. It might win just by virtue of being what it is. Yeah, but I guess you know they have more more people in marketing behind them, um, and it could be a whole sort of VHS versus Betamax. You know, technically superior solution just didn't have enough porn behind it. Well, if there's one thing we learned from Microsoft Windows NT, is that bad stuff wins. <laughs> Today yeah. we call it 2012, but it's still not much better than the Windows NT 3.5 I first uh, played with in 1998. Right? It's not functionally much different. Still got the same. You know, most of what's in it is the same, and it still works just about as well as it used to back then too. Well, at least now you don't have to install two service packs in order to have an actual functioning OS. <laughs> I have reduced that requirement down to a few hotfixes. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, they've made it easier to install patches, is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Gee whiz, go hard, people. <laughs> that, so, um, interesting thing with with regards to to SDN, though, because I'm I'm guessing that 
me, Ed, and Chris, none of us would be talking about SDN at all if it weren't for VMware actually doing something in that space. And uh, it kind of shifts the, the audience a bit, in a way. Not really, no. The biggest, by far the biggest driver for SDN today is not VMware, it's actually OpenStack. Okay. And the defining of the quantum network overlay engine, which actually defines the, sorry, not the quantum orchestration engine inside of OpenStack, is where most networking will come from. And despite via, I suspect at this point in time, and you know, I could be wrong, but I would say that 70% of the network industry's attention is focused around quantum in OpenStack. And even VMware has announced that they will support the quantum orchestration API as part of their recent announcement. So VMware doesn't have to lead the networking industry to be able to win at what they do, right? EMC will make sure that VMware makes plenty of money out of selling virtualization through vCloud Director, right? And and shell and, and shoveling out vSphere. But there are equally good products in the years ahead, and certainly from the networking industry, VMware is only one platform. So OpenStack is very popular as a hypervisor and as a virtualization orchestration tool, and but in networking, we're particularly focused around quantum. VMware NSX is also an orchestration tool for networking via the VMware NSX strategy. So what I probably should do is try and give you guys... Um, let me give you my quick spiel about network as a platform because I, I want to just paint a picture here about how critical networking is in terms of the overall architecture. One of, the, one of the things is that when we build data centers, right, we put power in them. So everything we do is a, is a power platform. So the most important thing in a data center isn't actually servers or data or tape drives or you know, whatever, it's power. And the second one after power is, you know, and, and cooling, I'll, I'll just lump all the physicals together under power. The one that's right up then next is networks. And your network is actually a coherent system that actually spreads right across your data center and reaches out into the WAN. So without a solid network, you don't actually have a happy data center. You don't have happy servers. You don't have happy backups. You don't have happy storage arrays and all that type of thing. One of the things that people forget about networks is this connectedness. So when you wibble one, you know, if you change something on a switch, it's connected to another switch and connected to another switch. And in fact, one change on one switch can shut down an entire data center, you know, with tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of servers. So networking has, as an industry or as, a, you know, as engineers have to be very confident that what they do is a certain, that what the way we're going forward is is strong and is going to be resilient and that we can cope with it, right? Because what we have today in networking is 30 years of built up rubbish where things have been laid on top of each other and it's kind of locked us into a corner of being inflexible or whatever. And, you know, above networks is then your servers and your virtualization and then your applications. But networks is a platform, and the problem with networks is that everything, um, it's very fragile because everything's connected together. And network is slow to change because of that. We struggle to be able to make these, we struggle to be able to do these things without causing outages. You know, one firewall change, you make one little rule and all of a sudden you've shut something out because all the rules cascade. These sorts of cascading failures, this brittleness of the system is something we want to try and get away from. And that's part of what software-defined networking is reaching for. So, you know, don't make fun of your network engineer. He's got a, his own image of the network and he's got to run his own, you know, I might call you server huggers or something, but... <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, because traditionally, when I, um, you know, going back to having to try and explain the concept of a, a virtual switch to my uh, my colleague, um, we got we got talking about you know um, some of the the potential for virtualizing network appliances, so um, firewalls, uh, and eventually we, the conversation got onto things like load balancers. And one of the arguments that he put forward for why this was a stupid thing to do, um, and ironically, he now works for F5, but um, was that, you know... That's the, not irony. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> lunacy. But the, the hardware had, you know, you had custom silicon. Um, and the whole reason that they worked as well as they did was because you had custom ASICs uh, specifically designed to do that job. And if you you can't if you're trying to put that onto a x86 based platform by virtualizing it, then it would not be able to do that job. Um, is mm -hmm. the, the sort of the reasons that we can now do more of this is just that we've got faster x86 platforms so that we can just brute force our way through something? It's not the most elegant solution, but there's if we throw enough processing behind it, we'll get it to work eventually. Um, or you know, or have they just rewritten the, the way that? Um, a, an application that is, is is dealing with the network in a more efficient way. Uh, so that it actually happens in multiple parts. So the first one is Intel's flatline performance. You know they've gotten up to enough gigahertz and enough whatever to actually start to get towards the performance of custom silicon. Right. The second part of it is that that Intel's now folding features into their CPU uh, based around a thing called the DPDK toolkit which is their data processing data kit, which oh, something like that, data plane developer's kit, which is for, allows a bunch of networking functions to be actually taken as programming primitives within the CPU core. So the things that were previously required custom silicon to accelerate networking are now actually being built into the, the generation, the current generation of Intel CPUs. And I was reading some research recently where an Intel processor you know, standard, fairly standard Intel motherboard can do 40 gigabits per second of deep packet inspection um, with the appropriate toolkits and development environments. So that's 40 gigabits per second for a single server, for a single physical server, is actually a lot, right? Yeah. Now, we put VMware on top of it, and it actually gets a lot slower than that because it's not optimized for packet forwarding. But let's say it's good enough to switch 20 gigabits per second, say at 50% of that. Well, that's actually a lot for a hypervisor. You don't normally connect your servers at much better than 20 gigabits per second. You know, and getting flatline performance out of a server anyway is pretty hard because you don't normally have applications that can generate that much data in its overwrite. That's point number one. Point number two has been is that managing large number of network devices has never been possible. We've only ever had standards. So it took VMware to come along and invent the thing called vCenter, which is hardly an invention. When you create an explosion of servers via the use of hypervisors, right? So, I mean, Microsoft has a lot to thank VMware for, and I believe it was one of the CEOs of VMware who stood up and said to, um, I just wanted to apologize for the explosion of Microsoft servers in your data center, right? <laughs> because virtualization allowed Microsoft to get a whole news lease alive, because you could now, it was even easier to have where before you might load two or three applications on a single Windows server, now you just load one because it can't run many because it falls over, right? Um, I'm being a bit snarky about Microsoft again. <laughs> Stop me if I get... It's all right, we'll, we'll, get up, we'll get on to Microsoft. <laughs> right. 
Sure. So in the same way that vCenter came around to help manage expanding fleets of it, you know, the early 2000s, if you were running 50 to 60 servers, you were running a huge server farm. Well, you know, today the same team is, you know, a thousand. You know, it's not unlike for a good-sized banking institution to run three to five thousand servers. Yep. You can't manage them individually. I mean, remember Windows used to have that um, that toolkit, and you right-click and you'd select your server, and then you'd see, well, that that doesn't work for a thousand servers or three thousand servers. You have to come up with a different paradigm. But in networking, up until two years ago or three years ago, your average data center only had a couple of hundred devices, and out of those couple of hundred. You know, the top of rack switches were all layer two, so they were really easy. You didn't fiddle with them much. So really it came down to the DMZ, the WAN interface, and the handful of core switches that you're running. And really that was where you spent, you know, 80-20 rule. 80% of your time was spent in the network core. Okay. Right. So we didn't need tools that gathered or we didn't need a vCenter. So now that we've got this concept of a vCenter or a controller that actually talks to all of the networking devices, so what does this controller do? Well, what it actually does is it has this, because it actually sees all of these NSX agents in the VMware switch all around the network, and it can configure them, right? So it's actually able to do right into those things. And you remember I talked earlier about flows? So we talk about a flow being what in networking speak is called a tuple, and a tuple is a source and a destination, a source IP, a destination IP, a source MAC address, a destination MAC address, source TCP port, source destination TCP port, and that, that all of those things can come together to define a flow or packet. So I can create a flow in that network device which says I see all of the HTTP traffic coming to this server, I'll send it up to that VM. Right. Okay. If I see a flow that matches this profile, I'll drop it. That's called firewalling. Actually, it's called access lists in most language, but it's sometimes called firewalling. Yeah. Or I could do something a bit more sophisticated, and I can actually do flow balancing, where I could say I can see some flows coming in, and I can see a bunch of source addresses, so I'll create two flow rules that say if anything's coming in from these source addresses, match it to this destination, so this web server. That. But if you're coming in from these source addresses, I'll load balance you over to that web server. That's called load balancing. That's very, very different from what you have today. So a vSwitch today is fundamentally an advanced patch lead. Yep. It's really just, you know, this virtual NIC patches to that physical NIC. This virtual NIC patches to that physical NIC. It's not a switch at all. Um, even though it can communicate between two virtual NICs, that's actually not a feature. That's actually a bug as far as I'm concerned because virtual servers don't always sit inside the same server. Virtual servers can go anywhere. So if you imagine that you can talk between two you know, talk on the internal bus is, and you think that's actually important, you should actually get a good spanking and be sent to bed without any dinner <laughs> <laughs> because of that, right? My favorite one, oh, well, I put them together so they run faster. Yeah, but the point of VMware is so they don't have to be together, right? Then, uh, anyway, and so what we can do is have this controller load the flows into the software agent in the hypervisor. There you are. You've just invented VMware NSX. Okay, so, so you know, um, and I'm guessing that VMware will make it reasonably, uh, not sort of, sort of easy, sort of, you know, very, very basic, but it'll be quite accessible, I would hope, because that was my my big disappointment with um, when they when they launched the, the Cisco 1000V 1000, 1000 type uh, switches, um, that, you know, I was hoping that we'd actually have something that would be usable, but in fact it was this sort of halfway house that pretended to look like a Cisco switch, but it actually wasn't really and didn't actually help anything at all. 
Um, so I know, you know, unfortunately, it sort of it became a bit more of a prerequisite for um, some of the cloud director stuff. But a lot of people just didn't bother using it because it didn't really offer them anything apart from a sort of a um, to pretend to the network guy that they were doing some Cisco when they weren't really. Well, there's a couple of. I can either. I don't come to bury Cisco, but to praise them, I guess, would be the quote I use there. <laughs> if you, how would I explain it? So, first of all, you've got to sell a product that people will buy. Yep. And if you suddenly walk along to people who've been working in networking for the past 15 years and say, yeah, yeah, and you know, all that idea is about rooting packets, that's all old hat, we're going to replace that with flow forwarding. Yeah. Well, eh, hard, right? Not Who's going to pony up the bucks? And if you're Cisco, you want to make a billion-dollar product. Right? Anything less than a billion dollars is a failure. So you aren't going to make a switch that doesn't look like anything your customers want, but it does also position you right where you want to be, right? Because Cisco now has a software agent that goes in the hypervisor, and yep. they've got a version of the 1000V for Hyper-V, and there's an open switch version called 1000V. So they're now in a position to be able to connect together multiple hypervisors. They can route just as easily between a Hyper-V platform or a... And it's not perhaps as elegant as what we're going to see, but do not also think that once the software agent is there, Cisco could come along with a controller that actually leverages that capability and does something similar as the NSX. That's very true. So you right. know, there's a good chance that they're they're not going to be wants to be pushed out of the picture on, on this. Uh, it's it's certainly not solely going to be a, an EMC based party. Uh, right. That's correct. Okay. So we talked a bit about virtual patching. Virtual patching, which is vSwitch, is boring and kind of you know. Bleh. So we've now got this really intelligent piece of software which has this flow concept, where I can send flows wherever I want. Right. So what I what NSX is going to do, and this is the key secret to NSX. When packets come, let's say the VM transmits a, fr a, a flow of data, so you know, lots of different packets, it'll come down and hit the NSX software agent in the hypervisor. And what the NSX software will, will do is it'll say, I know where that's got to go, and I'm going to send it into this VXLAN tunnel. And that VXLAN tunnel connects to that NSX switch over there. But one of the other VMs might come down and hit this NSX switch and say, well, I need to send it to this other hypervisor over there. So it sends it in a different... VXLAN tunnel. And when it wants to talk to the server over on the right, it sends it down a different tunnel. That's called routing. So what you're actually doing in the NSX switch now is you can switch, so you can transmit frames at layer 2 into a tunnel so they get to where they want to be. You can route traffic into the right VLAN because the flow engine allows you to munge packets or mangle them if you like. It means you can rewrite them as they go through the NSX. So you could say, I need to send this from the, this layer 3 to that layer 3. I'll just rewrite the header and send it on, and then I've just rooted it. I don't need to send it to a router to be rooted, right? Yep. I can I can do the routing function in software in the hypervisor. Maybe at some CPU cost, but I can do it in the hypervisor. So now what I have is this: all of these NSX devices in all the hypervisors forming all these tunnels over the backplane. Oh, and by the way, you know, VXLAN and you multicast and all that sort of stuff? Yeah? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's all gone. Forget that. By the time this gets anywhere, we won't be using multicast anymore. Right? We all, all the things that we use multicast for in the network today for VXLAN will all be replaced in software within six to twelve months. It's everybody's everybody's sort of converging on that idea because multicast is uber hard and dumb. It's a single failure domain. 
it's unstable, it's hard to secure, and really expensive to make go in terms of operational. So nobody wants to do it. Okay? Mm-hmm. So now we've got NSX <clears throat> switches all connected together via tunnels. Well, I can do this without changing my physical network because it's all just an IP frames with VXLAN data wandering all my way around my data center network, right? Yeah, so basically yep. what you're doing is, uh, in, in that sense, you're replacing whatever the networking guys set up anyway and use that as transporting stuff and you move it as a purely transport thing and then you move all the uh, software, all the, the actual action items happens in the MSS instead of in the physical networking components. Kind of. So some things you'll still want to do in the network, some things you want to do in NSX. So NSX is still not a proper firewall that your security department will recognize. So it's still not a stateful packet inspection engine, but it is an edge packet filter, right? Which Which is really good for security because it means right at the edge of your network, right when the ingress happens and the egress happens, you can be controlling everything that happens. Right on the VM where the v- where the where the guest comes in, I now have access filtering, and I have a central point of control for that. But just maybe so I, <clears throat> something a little more basic on that. How how do you think that's going to affect uh, like corporate IT operations teams as a as a whole? Um, is the network guy going to have to converge more with the the virtualization guy? Is the virtualization guy going to have to become somewhat of a networking guy? I see the virtualization guy having to realize that virtualization doesn't live in a silo, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> today when I work with VMware people, they mm. think that they're the only people who can run VMware. Running VMware is actually pretty simple. Hypervisors are like assholes. Everybody's got one. Right? There's KVM, <laughs> there's Hyper-V, I've got one on my Mac, I've got VirtualBox, and you know, there's at least 40 different hypervisors available today. Hypervisors aren't magic. They're just garden. The, the value that VMware brings to you is around, it, you know, it's not vSphere or ESX. It's vCenter. It's the thing that gives you the management tool that pulls it all together, right? And most virtualization people think that running vCenter makes them clever. Well, and most networking people have got the inverse problem. They actually have a fairly, at least vCenter allows you to see everything, right? Your networking guy walks around in his head with the configuration and operational parameters of 50 to 100 devices or, you know, 500 to 1,000 devices and has no unified capability to sort of configure those, if that makes sense. And so I see controller-based networking is intervening directly in VMware, so it's going to upset the VMware people. It's going to upset the networking people. It's going to make it upset all of the security policies that we have today. So things today like where the security policy relies on, you know, cr- what we call crunchy edge security, which is the perimeter old firewall off. Well, all of a sudden we can do real defense in depth. We don't need DMZs anymore because I can create virtual DMZs inside of VXLAN with accessless filters at the edge of every box. And then I have stateful inspection between them, but I can have those in software. Right? I can have virtual firewalls in software between the DMZ layers. I don't need a physical firewall anymore. Okay. So who's it going? So if it's going to upset the the VMware guy, the network guy, and the security guy, who's it going to make happy? Uh, the boss, because it gets a hell of a lot cheaper. So now your physical infrastructure just goes in, and then everything is just software configuration. So normally the file, you know, normally what happens is the. Um, you know when you want to go and deploy a new web service? 
somebody has to go into the v, the vSphere cluster that sits outside in the DMZ and go and deploys a system. And then the firewall guy does his thing, the load balancing guy does his thing, the switching guy does this thing in the lands, and then we go and argue with the storage guy to get some more space made on the LUN, and then he whines about his backup engine, you know. Well, VMware's been fixing the LUNs, you know, the storage engines, making them less visible to VMware. Just give me a, you know, give me a two-terabyte VMDK and I'm happy, and then just back that up, right? Or, you know, how to do in-VM backups with Avamar. Just stun the system for three seconds while we snap the memory shots, right? What about, um, so storage is kind of being fixed. We're making it more flexible, despite storage industry's best attempts to, you know, pretend that they're relevant and actually have anything interesting to say, because they don't. And the networking needs to change as well to become more dynamic and more flexible, but we need new tools. The VMware people need to be aware of the network and need to accept the fact that networking is going to come and come down on them hard, but networking needs to be able to define rules for VXLAN creation, VLAN termination, where firewalls are. So for me personally, I'm moving to implement most of my routing functions in the VMs, so our designs at Canopy are we use software-based routers, we use software-based firewalls, we use software-based load balancers, and only in exceptional circumstances do we switch out to hardware. Okay. And I expect the VMware guy to understand what they mean. I expect the networking guy to understand what the VMware guy needs to make that happen. And that's really, really hard because the VMware guy thinks that thinks that VMware is where it's all at and that's what his experience is and he has to learn a whole lot of new fundamental technologies and the networking guy has all these fundamental technologies and these years of training in his head he doesn't really want to have to start thinking about VMware or Hyper-V or OpenStack but we will it's all going to happen because all of networking and all of VMware is now pretty easy right you can read a couple of textbooks on VMware and you're away it's not that hard yeah it's interesting that you sort of look at uh, the VMware guy as forming his own silo because you know I always used to view it that the VM guy actually just sort of sat across uh, all the other silos in that you know you had to be able to talk to the networking guys and do a little bit of networking you had to be able to talk to the storage guys do a little bit of storage you had to be able to talk to the compute you know the the traditional server teams and application teams. Uh, to understand what they needed and how to uh, architect any sort of given solution for them. Um, yeah, the, the VMware product's pretty inflexible, right? At the end of the day, you can just go and talk to the Windows NT guy and he today, and yep. it's just a bit of CPU, a bit of memory, and a bit of storage space. Most of your storage discussions are fairly simplified. VMware has redacted down all of the capabilities into a subset of functions that you see. You don't actually have to know about things like Fiber Channel. You don't have to understand... Um, the different CPU infrastructures. VMware simplified it down to here's a couple of vCPUs. Ta-da! Sure, but from a uh, like a tier one application perspective, you still kind of have to worry about the spindles at the back end and stuff like that. It can't just all be abstracted so simply, I, I guess. Okay, have you yeah, ever I, bothered to learn how the network works and why it might run slow? Sure, I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm not, I'm not being hostile. I'm just saying VMware guys. <laughs> you need to know who to blame. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I, I see VMware guys in my experience are just as much siloed as networking guys. Nobody's better or worse, except that networking guys also because they sit further down the, the stack. They've always had a view of storage and always had a view of servers, always had a view of VMware, and that helps. It's not going to be as painful as 
you know, bringing the server guys into the VMware world. It's always easy for the people. So server guys always understood applications because they sat on top of their platform. It's always easy to look up the model, always hard to look down. So server guys never learn networking because it's hard to look down. They never learn power. They never learn racking, never learn cabling because that's down the model. So VMware, people spend a lot of time looking up the model towards guests and applications, not a lot of time looking down the model towards storage and networking and cabling. And that's always a challenge. Interesting. Yeah. So no, it, it's just it's funny that that, that sort of you know as uh, VMware has become more popular, that the that it has formed a, a silo of its own. Um, traditionally, you know, it was just a an offshoot of the server guy, um, and that. But now the server guy and the VMware guy can be quite different. Uh, yeah. Sure. I mean, this user outlooks. That's not new. That happened to me in the late nineteen ninety eight, right? When I was the networking network guy, Novell Network. And then we went off and did Windows NT 3.51, and I became the Windows guy. But, uh, big deal. There's nothing new about this. So, uh, speak, speaking of Windows guy, you know, um, what, do you, what do you think Microsoft's take on this uh, has been? Because, you know, if you, if you go back, when Microsoft has tried to do networking, it's always been a bit interesting. Um, you know, I used to generally be able to make a network guy laugh by asking about uh, Microsoft's routing and remote <laughs> access engine. Um, <laughs> And the, the fact that Microsoft suggests that you should you should be using Windows servers as, as routers. Um, well, in fact, the RS code that they bought, they actually bought it from Bay Networks, if you want to know, or Nortel, right? So the actual routing code itself was fine. It was their kernel implementation in RS that was a problem. So up until um, two years ago, the networking stack in Windows was still run as a serial port. And so every time they transmitted a packet, they actually wrote it to that part of the kernel, which was a serial I.O., and raised a non-maskable interrupt on the CPU. So every time you moved a packet out of the kernel and across the bus, you actually paused the CPU, cleared the bus, and then shifted the packet out. Ooh. Right, seriously. That doesn't sound particularly efficient. No, it wasn't, right? But that's because Microsoft didn't, cho you know, chose networking to just, I want to pretend it's not a problem. Fair enough, you can do that, right? But the latest versions of 2012, the network has actually been brought into the kernel and you can actually get reasonable performance out of it. So anything you want to say about networking historically has largely been changed since um, Windows 7 and Server 2012, where when Microsoft finally wrote actually a very competent TCP IP stack. Took them 20 years, but, you know, let's let's pretend that that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> They get there eventually. Um, they get there eventually. They but do you, are they looking to do their own, um, you know, implementation of this, or are they just going to buy into yes, sort of the third party? So Microsoft already does. They have a thing called um, NVGRE. I don't know what their virtual switching platform is called, but in exactly the same way as I described, the software agent, you know, frames come in, flows up. Uh, there's a flow table about where data is going to go once it matches the extended tuple, the network tuple. They have a, instead of encapsulating in VXLAN, they currently choose to encapsulate in MVGRE because it, only Microsoft would use its own standards. They're losing the battle there because nobody wants to support MVGRE, so it seems likely they'll choose something else. Um, for example, Nasira invented their own protocol called STT. There was a blog post on VMware's real uh, website recently confirming that STT would die off and VXLAN would be their converged way going forward. So, you know, VXLAN is likely to be the tunnel protocol of choice at this point in time. The IETF is also inventing one called NVO3. Um, it, we don't know if that will get up. If it does, 
it will probably be an open stack. I believe there's some commits into the uh, open vSwitch code, but that's a different story. I guess in the long-term future is that VMware NSX has announced that they are developing a version of their vSwitch for Hyper-V so that the VMware NSX engine can route traffic or can network between Hyper-V and VMware in the future and OpenStack. In fact, it already does OpenStack today. It's only VMware that they're still coding for, and then later they'll move to Hyper-V so that they can connect everybody's loads together. Yeah? Right, so, obviously, so the advantage of doing that... Is that you wouldn't have to then break out to a traditional routed network uh, before you went back into the the, the, the software-defined tunnel? No. The advantage of that is that you've got a controller. The controller does all the configuration of the network and gathers data back about the state of the network. Well, I don't know if NSX does that. I can tell you about other people's products. So if you go and look at Juniper Contrail, and there's another company who'll come out of stealth in the next two weeks, who you'll see. So what they have is controllers which actually monitor the state of the network. And this is what VMware NSX does not do today. So these other controllers actually implement OSPF uh, routing instances and BGP routing instances, and they speak to the routing engines around them and read the link state database. So they actually contain all the physical database of the underlying network, and they can tell you what the topology looks like, and they can analyze the physical state of the network. And then... Um, they also do far more intelligent things with their controller platforms. So they're actually able to synchronize controllers in two data centers. VMware NSX today is still only the announced product is only within one data center. But in reality, we need to be able to sync code between two data centers, right? We need to be able to switch traffic coming out of a VMware NSX in data center one and get it over to data center two. So there are other people's products that do that today. They perform. So if this controller is a single point at the top of the network that configures all your virtual switch agents, your NSX agents, then that controller should be able to sync its configuration and its state database with another one on the other side so that you can route directly between two servers without having to do data center interconnect. So and the value of the controller is that it's a single point you can do an API call to. Yeah. Um, and where, you know, you said say data center one, data center two, you know, one of those could be um, public cloud or, you know, a, uh, an off-premise off provider Presumably. No, you talk to your off-prem provider via an API. So you'd have your inboard controller, and then you'd have your orchestration tool, your VCD, VC ops, right? Yep. Talking down to your VMware NSX, and you have your networking, and then all of a sudden you say, I need to make an API call to instantiate my network in my off-prem, my hybrid cloud, yep. and their controller would then take care of it. You wouldn't see that. Okay, you wouldn't actually need to be installing that. No, but the API is the value. Right. Right. So the the same the same uh, rules you know for for the flows that work in your internal data center can be transmitted through said API to your your off-prem, uh, yes. so that the information about the the underlying service, which is I guess the you know the, the final product of that data center, is consistent between the two the two um, environments. Yeah. So the two things you want from a controller is your API. I want to instantiate, I'm instantiating this server. Please attach it to this VXLAN with this IP, with this on this VXLAN, with this IP address, with that MAC address, and the controller then punches the data into the NSX. That controller is now a point where it can be queried by an upper layer, so the API can come down. But now the networking guy can now go to the controller and query the tool using some sort of management tool, and I can actually see which server is now connected to the network because the configuration data is in one place. 
cool. So instead of the virtualization guy being utterly disconnected from the networking guy, and he, you know, the virtualization guy goes, I don't know, there's 20 servers in that DRS cluster. How the hell do I know which nick it's on, which network port it's on, right? Now yeah, it's a common conversation. Common conversation, and you, then you have to lock the VM to the get to a given server, and so that he can do a sniff trace. Well, in this case, we can now just go to the controller with an API call and see where the VM is, what NSX it's on, and then because I know which NSX it's on, the, it will know which switch, physical switch it's connected to, and then you take it away from there. Because, and the important part here is because this is all software controlled, and because this is all done at the edge of the network, right? So now I have hundreds of routers and hundreds of access control lists here, right? The load is really distributed around the network, so it's not centralized anywhere. There's no single points of failure. You might lose one hypervisor if something pops, but that's not as bad as a normal network change, which pops the entire network. And the second thing is that it leaves your physical network unchanged. So if, could you imagine doing an API access to a Cisco set, Nexus 7000 switch today and say, I'm creating a new VLAN, and then the spanning tree pops a fooey and goes into a bridging loop and the whole data center melts down? That would be that would be bad. Okay, so yeah, the I, I like the idea of it uh, being the the, mon the monitoring and management of not only um, you know the existing infrastructure, but be able to discover and, and reach out for some of the um, the legacy, the the physical infrastructure, so that it's it's aware of where it is. Um, yeah, so many systems are not particularly yeah. interconnected. Yeah, so if you remember, so if I go back to when I was last a server guy in 2009-96, sorry. Anyway, when I last was involved with servers around sort of the early 2000s, 2002, 2003, and I had to go to each server and plug into it, right, to connect my Windows console to each server, and then I administer them in each individually. Ten years later, I have vCenter, which looks at all of the hardware as in one console. I can see all of my hypervisor hardware in one single window. And what does that give you as a server guy? It means you can see what's going on. You know what your assets are. You see how things look. That's what networking needs to do. And that's SDN. Right. So I say, wouldn't SolarWinds say they've been doing something like that for, for years of having a one console that a network admin can look at and find all the status of their devices? But they can, yes, they have. And not just them, any one of the other uh, network management vendors. Yep. but they don't configure anything. Okay. The yeah. SNMP protocol, which we've been using for the last 20 years, is read-only. You read data out of the network, but you can't write. There was actually an OETF um, flab fest somewhere around 2002, 2003, and then it was finalized in 2004, 2005, when everybody agreed that SNMP could never be used as for writing configurations. I like it. It's, it's only really been up to this point a read-only protocol. Yes, it's read-only. So we read interface stats. And even then, all of the features in SNMP haven't been enabled. Even then, SolarWinds really only pulls a bunch of custom variables for Cisco equipment and a handful of other companies. But the rest of it's all just standard speed in, speed out, up, down, red, green. And then you try and make the most of what the data set that you could get is. They haven't... Um, you know, there's, there's no other tools... You know, NetManage, Opsware, HP OpenView, all of those tools, they just can only do so much with the data that they get from the network today. It's been enough for the last 20 years. It's not enough in 2013. Okay, so we're going to be seeing some quite big 
big changes coming up soon. Yeah, and the flip side of this is, of course, is SDN works just as well for wireless and for the campus. So don't get overly bent out of shape about VMware NSX. This is where VMware is vulnerable. They're only currently managing the VMware platform, whereas your networking guy needs a solution that does all of his wireless, all of his campus, all of his WAN, and the data center too. So yeah, basically, what we're what we're saying here is that VMware is trying to bring in uh, the the uh, the management and configuration of all the networking uh, as one component in their solution, and, and others are doing the same thing, and, and they're supporting OpenStack and Hyper-V and whatever as, as well, which I guess makes a lot of sense. But basically, it's not turning networking into something that the virtualization guys should or would play around with, but they're trying to do something similar to what they did with virtualization in the sense of consolidating management for the actual networking people. Not so much. So, yeah. <laughs> yes, you're partly right. So, VMware, when they invented... Um, so, recently they did some things around the storage industry, invented and came up with the VAAI and the VASA, right? Which made it a lot easier for VMware to configure storage arrays and to instantiate you know, LUNs and, and to access images and stuff like that. Fair? Yeah, it makes it easy to talk to the uh, storage, the storage, underlying storage, not configure it as much, but offload stuff to it. But yeah, okay. That's right. Okay, so if you think of VMware NSX as fundamentally being that, mm -hmm. then that's fine. But networking's a bit bigger than VMware, right? Or a bit bigger than even the data center. Networking includes the service provider WAN that, that builds the global backbones of all the carriers. We have SDN for campus, so all of those desktops, we'll, we need SDN for Wi-Fi. I mean, I was talking to a guy from a university. I did a podcast on packet pushes. It's called um, Driving a Golf Cart Through My Fiber Tunnel. And this guy has 100, one of those guys has 150,000 Ethernet ports and 60,000 wireless devices in his network today. It's a university campus. You know, everybody's got an iPod, an iPad, and a laptop. They don't plug them into the Ethernet all that often, if you know what I'm saying. So we have, in the networking industry, we also have a campus problem, and we also have a Wi-Fi problem. We also have a carrier problem. How do we manage the WANs, the service provider WANs, to do be more flexible? You know, how long does it take to provision a new MPLS circuit to your data center today, another 10 gig pipe? Three months. Can't yeah. we do that faster? Can't we make that better? Okay. So VMware NSX is a step in that direction. It solves VMware's pain point, which allows them to keep generating revenue in the short term. The networking industry will take a little bit longer to develop a product that addresses all of the concerns in the networking industry. And that's perhaps why you might say, oh, the networking industry is going so slow. And when VMware tries to take cheap shots at the network and say, um, you know, the network's in my way or networking is obsolete and all that sort of stuff. Um, it doesn't really help. VMware taking cheap shots of things, surely not. Surely not. But, it, you know, it just looks, you know, it doesn't. it's not a good look um, because networking's kind of bigger than VMware. VMware's, you know, important, don't get me wrong, but to a networking guy, VMware's just one operating system in the data center 
one of many. He's also got, an, you know, I just come from a platform where we actually have an IBM mainframe, AIX, HParks, Windows cluster, and we also had a bunch of bare metal servers. I even had some, you know, 30-year-old minis and my VMware cluster. So yeah, networking so guy, you know, doesn't live, doesn't live in his VMware environment. No, but by doing centralizing management and configuration, you're kind of doing the same thing that VMware wanted to do with uh, virtualizing in the first place. Exactly. Centralizing, centralizing management and distributing assets and access based on uh, need, what you want, or some other parameter you, you choose, but you're centralizing the management of your infrastructure. While this is networking, it, the last thing was servers, or CPU, memory, storage, disk, whatever, and now we're talking the networking part and centralizing that and making it easier to uh, to manage and deploy the networking across whatever vendor you have, providing the physical pipe access. Uh, kind of, except it's only VMware NSX only solves the NSX the VMware problem. It doesn't solve any of the other problems. It's a bit limited, right? So, um, so it's even more. You still haven't solved the physical networking problem. What we really need to be doing is programming the physical network too. So even though, you know, we talked about all these tunnels crossing all the switches in the data center, what we probably need to be doing is those tunnels are kind of fire and forget. Where's the quality of service? So let's say your VXLAN tunnel is sharing Oracle traffic and VDI traffic, and it's running through a 10 gig network pipe. Well, we can't cross that anymore. So you can't go to your network guy and say, make sure the Oracle stuff, make sure the VDI stuff goes first because it uses less bandwidth. But there's a massive Oracle transaction going on, and it's killing off the VDI. And once that stuff's encapsulated in VXLAN, it's invisible. Oh, okay. So, plenty of problems to solve yet. Um, so the next generation of networking assets is where we actually bind the tunnel fabric. You know, I talked about all these tunnels. We bind the flows down into the underlying network. So the networking equipment itself becomes fully programmable. And there are networking startups addressing exactly that problem that will be out in the next two or three months that allow you to program the physical network in such a way that you can control the flows end to end. And then it really gets interesting. I, I, I guess the one thing I get out of, out of this is that I don't get networking. That's <laughs> basically what I'm... I'm, I'm <laughs> I, I, I think I'm more confused now than I was before we started, which could be a good thing in the long run, but right now it doesn't feel like it. I, 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 probably due to my migraine today, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm sorry that I did that, but I think the answer is that if your networking guy pushes back on NSX, it might be because he's got bigger problems to solve, and he sees NSX solving the VMware problem, but it hasn't solved the rest of the problems. So maybe he wants to sit there and go, mm, you know, I really need something that solves the campus and the wireless and the... Um, so take some time to sit down and, you know, I, I think there are no standards for VMware NSX to integrate with Juniper Contrail to integrate with Cisco's one controller. Mm. But should you be pushing your uh, networking guy, say, uh, to adopt, want to choose one of these frameworks, whether it, you know, whether it is the, the VMware one or 
uh, the Juniper one, etc., as the, you know, this is the changes that we need to make. It's going to make your life better because of X, Y, Z. It's going to make my life better as well. Uh, yeah. And plus, on top of that, the boss is going to like it because it's going to save us some money. Yeah. Um, you know, should <laughs> should the uh, the push you know come from that direction as well? So the push should, should be that your networking guy needs to engage with the wider industry. So in a very real sense, the networking industry hasn't innovated much in the last decade. I'd agree with that. We haven't, you know, we're still using BGP and OSPF and Ethernet, and our switches just got bigger and faster. No big deal. We've solved off a lot of the stability problems. We've twiddled around the edges of things. This is this concept of using flow folding is a general, genuine innovation. It's genuinely different. I would encourage networking people to get out there and start engaging with it. Uh, remember, right at the beginning, I said VMware NSX won't ship beta versions until the second half of this year, and it won't be in any sort of GA form until the middle of next year. No need to panic and rush out and start spending money. It's time to start engaging around the SDN open flow, flow forwarding, virtual switching, virtual networking argument, um, and, and start to understand how software appliances change. So the, the days of buying a hardware firewall and a hardware load balancer are already over. You can keep buying it today, but in six months to a year, you'll have moved to a completely software-based VM. I'll tell you why I'm really big on software-based appliances, and it's really simple, and we should probably wrap this up yep. on this point. But, you know, when I take a software-based firewall or a software-based load balancer and put it in a VM, I get one, one really, really key value. I get to charge someone for it. Because when I'm burning CPU and memory in a VM here, I can actually say this is how much it costs and you have to pay for that VM. And networking shifts from being a one-off capital cost to being a recurrent revenue earner. Well, yeah, with that, let's wrap up uh, this uh, week's vSoup. This is uh, vSoup 31. Is Greg, thanks a lot for being on. No problems. It's a pleasure. Sorry that I was a bit... It's Some of this is very new. Some of the concepts are hard to explain, but... A whiteboard would have been good. Yeah, no worries. We appreciate the explanation anyways. Uh, yep. as, brilliant. Yeah. As usual, you can uh, catch us on vsoup.net, iTunes, or Stitcher. Thanks for listening.